Welcome to The Sewing Circle, a women's history podcast. I'm your host, Peyton Alexander, and let's get right into it. So there's this show on Netflix that isn't without its faults, but the spirit of it is definitely what I wish the History Channel had been when I was a kid. It's a six-part pop history docudrama called The Lost Pirate Kingdom, a show centered around Nassau of the Bahamas during the golden age of piracy from 1715 to 1725. It's fun in that winking at the viewer way, and Jezebel contributor Brandy Jensen summed up its worth in a recent article, saying, The whole thing is perfect because it gives me precisely what I want in this sort of endeavor, the feeling of learning things without the burden of actually processing and retaining any new information. It is such a pleasant sensation to have something that seems like knowledge wash over you and leave nothing of itself behind. I have been cleansed in the waters of the 18th century Caribbean, and I feel well. End quote. All of this is to say that because I spent a weekend with CGI ships and questionable accents, we're going to talk about Ambani. Ambani was born Anne Cormick in County Cork, Ireland, around 1697. Her father, William, was a well-off lawyer who had impregnated the household maid, Mary Brennan. In some stories, they dressed her as a boy and said she was a distant relative's child entrusted to William's care. In others, they dressed her as a boy and said she was a clerk for William. I don't understand why she'd have to be a boy in order to be a relative's kid that William had taken under his wing, so I'm personally more inclined to believe the second story, since women at the time were relegated to more domestic duties rather than clerking for an attorney. Either way, their deception was eventually discovered, and William's wife made sure the whole town knew about it. With his reputation in Ireland ruined— William, Mary, and Anne immigrated to Charleston, South Carolina, where William was able to revive his law career and buy a plantation. So these were fairly well-off people. Mary died in 1711, when Anne was around 13 or 14, which I think we can all agree is just a terrible age, regardless of what she'd been through already. It was in the wake of her mother's death that she reportedly stabbed a servant girl, murdering her, and also nearly beat to death a man who tried to rape her. She would stay out late, carousing all night in taverns, and building a reputation as someone who slept around a lot, and these rumors were damaging to William's business. He eventually ended up disowning her after she married a poor sailor named James Bonney. I'm sure he promised her adventure and excitement— but she'd come to find out he was lazy and spiteful and willing to double-cross anyone if it meant some coin in his pocket. The two moved down to Nassau in the Bahamas, where Anne Bonny's life really began. So let's talk about Nassau. It's the capital of New Providence, which is currently the most populated Bahamian island of the chain. It sits in the center of what were well-traveled shipping lanes between Europe and the colonized West Indies. Pirates used Nassau, which was an English colony, as a safe haven marauder society. 
Nassau was primarily surrounded by Spanish colonies because, as you may remember from every history class ever, Christopher Columbus had quote-unquote discovered the New World, and the Pope had decreed all of it, even places that he didn't know about, belonged to Spain. Because this was far too much land, too far away from Spain, it was enormously expensive for the Spanish to rule and defend it all. And that's a long story short of how the English came to colonize much of North America because of how overstretched Spain was. However, they had been successful in terrorizing English colonizers in Nassau, which had left the port open for the pirates. Conditions on the seas opened the door for piracy to thrive in the Caribbean as well. The ocean was a treacherous place, in large part because of the War of Spanish Succession between 1702 and 1712, between naval battles and merchant vessel hijackings, as well as the general poor treatment of soldiers and mariners alike, it was hell to be on a ship. It's hazardous and hard work, not to mention the dangers presented by storms or the ocean itself. And that was for the white people. We're not even getting into the Atlantic slave trade, the thousands of ships coming from West Africa carrying human cargo. With the lawlessness of the ocean, governments needed to use privateers or individuals who could work under the auspice of the government but outside of the Navy to capture and fleece enemy ships. Oftentimes, this was the cheaper solution, too, because maintenance of the ships and crew fell to the privateers themselves rather than the government. The name of the game was cutting off supply lines, so Queen Anne of England allowed privateers to divide the spoils among themselves rather than submitting any or all of it to the Admiralty. What separated privateers from pirates was that letter of mark, or the license, that said, yes, you can attack these specific kinds of ships and take their stuff, and you're also allowed to act out of revenge if you so choose. That's what these papers say. So really... The privateers were just pirates with papers. England was doing really well with the system and presented themselves as a legit threat against both the French and Spanish as the three countries continued divvying up the islands and battling one another. So think about it. The ocean is filled with ships at this point, all carrying valuable goods like ammunition, fabrics, tobacco, sugarcane, and gold. It's understandable, with such irresistible targets, how illegal privateering, which is better known as piracy, came to be. In addition, pirates acted democratically, elected and removing captains by popular vote, as well as holding open forums to make decisions, which was absolutely unheard of otherwise. So you've got a lot of men who have been trained for a life on the sea, whether by a navy or from working on a merchant ship, and they've never seen any personal gain from risking their lives in military battles or defending themselves from privateers. An opportunity comes along, like the infamous Blackbeard boarding your ship and welcoming you into the pirating fold, and boom, you've got a better life. It's equally as difficult And now, yeah, you're operating outside the law, but you're treated as an equal. You have a voice and a vote, and you get an equal share of everything the crew takes. On a lot of ships, up to a third of the crew could be men who'd escaped enslavement. So who could say no? Well, Woods Rogers could, but we'll get to him in a moment. I hadn't realized this previously, but evidently some of the most famous pirates, or at least those from this golden age, 
all knew each other. Blackbeard, Sam Bellamy, Benjamin Hornigold, and Anne Bonny were all contemporaries, and they would have rubbed elbows in Nassau. Out in the ocean, pirate ships would often come to each other's aid or join together to take on a particularly large or difficult target. Anne and her husband James spent their time in Nassau drinking and carousing. It was rumored that Anne slept around quite a bit, and on at least one occasion was caught in a hammock with another man by James himself. While he was likely angry, it's doubtful he was heartbroken. Remember, when he met Anne, she was the only daughter to a rich widower. He likely thought she'd turn out to be his golden goose, without anticipating how much her father would hate him and the lengths that William was willing to go if Anne insisted on marrying such a disappointing example of a man. Taking that in connection with how publicly Anne carried on her affairs, I highly doubt there was love lost between the two. James began making some money by snitching out pirates to the aforementioned Woods Rogers, a man who had once been a privateer himself, but was now, in 1718, a pirate hunter under direction of the English crown. The man had experience fending off pirate attacks from the time he was a child, as his father had owned merchant ships, and Woods had also manned an expedition that circumnavigated the world. At one point on that trip, he and his crew had sailed incredibly close to Antarctica without any warm clothes. They'd run out of alcohol as well, and when I say that, I don't want you to think, oh, the party ended. No, this was, this was actually a really big deal. Fresh water on ships went bad really quickly, so fermented and distilled liquids were actually essential to survival. Did this mean sailors were frequently drunk? Obviously. But it kept them alive. His crew attempted a mutiny, but they failed. Later, a Spanish ship attacked them, killing Woods' brother and leaving him with a musket ball lodged in the roof of his mouth. In the Lost Pirate Kingdom, it was said that he'd gotten a piece of his jawbone lodged in his throat, which he finally was able to remove a couple of months later. So this was a tough guy to be appointed governor of the Bahamas in the hopes of squashing piracy once and for all. He'd been armed with pardons from the king as well, that any pirate who fully renounced his ways could get away scot-free. Of course, not everyone wanted to go back to working on ships for other people. Captains who ruled those ships with iron fists and weren't required to pay wages in a timely manner. It wasn't uncommon for desperate sailors to sell the IOUs they got in lieu of pay to loan sharks. And Anne, with her terrible husband and awful prospects, wasn't too eager for an adventurous life to be legislated away. Most women at the time were only educated enough to read the Bible and didn't have any rights or property of their own. In Nassau, Anne had been able to live largely how she wanted, and it probably always felt like she was just one headstrong moment away from boarding a ship herself. Her opportunity came when her lover, Calico Jack Rackham, offered to buy Anne from James. Maybe the amount he offered was too low, or maybe James thought he could stand to earn more from Governor Rogers, but James took the pair to Woods, who threatened to whip Anne for adultery. She fled and Jack followed, which voided the pardon he'd earned the previous year when the two stole a British sloop to escape the island. They took a small crew with them and sailed around the Caribbean for a few months, overtaking ships and building their crew. 
according to legend, and made for a fearsome pirate. In one instance, she hung a dressmaker's mannequin high on their ship, mangling the limbs and smearing it with fake blood. She stood before it with a huge axe and a crazy look on her face, which so frightened the passing French merchant ship that its crew just handed the cargo over to her. In another story, she stabbed a fellow pirate to death when he suggested women bring bad luck to ships. So Anne Bonny, Calico Jack, and their crew are living that quintessential pirate life that Americans in particular really love to romanticize through the legends. They're staying a step ahead of the man, plundering and pillaging, but in that bloodless way we like, or at least that the right kind of people are getting plundered and pillaged, and that our pirate heroes, rapscallions though they may be, have our sympathy and even sometimes our admiration. But let's not forget that pirates were and are violent criminals. If Anne actually killed the people she's supposed to have, Even though we might be rooting for her, it's a case of cool motive, still murder. So let's not jump on the pro-pirate bandwagon too heavily, even though the stories are a ton of fun, including tales about Anne and another infamous pirate, Mary Reed. Now, Anne would often dress in more traditionally manly attire when the crew would engage in battle with another ship, and she wasn't the only one. Mary Reed also had a history of being passed off as a boy in order to avoid shame and pull the wool over someone's eyes. In her case, her mother had become pregnant not long after the death of her husband. Her mother-in-law had agreed to continue funding the care of the son Mary's mother and her now-dead husband had together, but the boy died soon, too. Mary's mother dressed Mary, as a boy, to con the mother-in-law, but when she caught wise, she stopped sending money. Mary's mom realized she could essentially rent Mary out as a servant if she were dressed as a boy, so that's what they did. She served in the War of the Grand Alliance as a teenager, which is an event we're not going to get into here, and she had also served in the Army of Flanders, which, long story short, was a multinational Spanish-backed army based in the Netherlands. She did all this dressed as a man and eventually revealed herself to a fellow soldier because she'd fallen in love with him. While he initially proposed that she be his mistress, she protested the impropriety and they married, leaving the army together. When he died, she ditched the dresses she'd been wearing on land and returned to the seas as a man because it was much more useful to her. She was part of a crew whose ship was seized by pirates. Calico Jack served as quartermaster to this ship that overtook them, and he was none the wiser to her charade. Many pirates didn't have facial hair because they were so young, and it's possible that because of poor nutrition and stress that Mary just didn't get a period. Women have also been binding their breasts for a variety of reasons for ages, and by the time that she and Calico Jack met, uh, she was old hat at it. She was also brave and ruthless, which further threw any suspicion off of her. Obviously, not because women can't be brave and ruthless, but because of what men expect women to be. They each ended up accepting that royal pardon for their piracy in parted ways, but when the money ran out, Mary Reed took to piracy again, joining Jack's crew following the dust-up with Woods Rogers. Now, here is where things get a little murky in the historical record. In some tellings, 
Anne is known to be a woman, and known to be, specifically, Jack's woman on the ship. In others, she's disguised as Mary was, and so when the two met, either, you know, depending on who's telling it, Anne flirted with Mary, who ended up revealing her true identity upon threat of murder by a jealous Jack, or Anne and Mary each were dressed as men until one day Anne just had had enough and she decided to tell Mary who she really was, at which point Mary followed suit. Either way, Anne and Mary were a dynamic duo, holding their own with the rest of the crew and terrorizing their fair share of Caribbean ships. I personally believe that Anne, and possibly Mary as well, were known to be women on their ship. If you've ever seen the movie Stardust, and you remember Robert De Niro's character in it, you'll understand what I'm driving at here. During a trial we'll talk about in just a minute, one of their victims remarked that she knew those two pirates were women because she'd seen their large breasts. There's no way that a stranger in the middle of a siege noticed the anatomy of just two pirates out of dozens, and that Anne and Mary's own crewmates were clueless to the truth. I just don't buy that. I think that they all knew and just didn't really care. Another reason I think they were pretty chill about it is because I think they were generally undisciplined and laissez-faire as it stood. Because despite their successes all through the West Indies, the ship was apprehended by one of the governor's sloops in October of 1720 after a night of drunkenness. Anne and Mary tried to hold the men off, but to no avail. The rest of their crew, including Jack, was sleeping it off, prompting the women to shoot their pistols down into the hold and yell, If there's a man among ye, you'll come and fight. They were all captured and tried, with all being sentenced to hang. Jack's hanging was scheduled for November 18th, and his last request was to see Anne. When she went to his cell, she told him she was sad to see him there, but if he'd fought like a man, he wouldn't have to hang like a dog. That's 18th century for why a man great till he gotta be great. He was hanged and his body was put on display in a spot known to this day as Rackham's Key, near the entrance to Port Royal. She and Mary were tried 10 days later and also sentenced to death, but they each revealed they were pregnant or, in the parlance of the time, pled their bellies, which meant a stay in execution. We know Mary died in the Jamaican prison of a fever, but Anne's story is a little hazier. In my favorite version, she's rescued by her rich father who took her back to Charleston, where she married a man by the name of Joseph Burley after she had Jack's child. Not just because in that version she lives, which, yes, she's a violent criminal, but still, I'm, you know, a little bit of a fan. But also in that version, she and Joseph have eight children together before she dies an old woman. To me, legends either end in a powerful death or are riding off into the distance, not domestication. And to me, it's a juicier telling of a woman who defined herself by excitement and adventure that her years after piracy were spent as a housewife, dying in comfort in a genteel colony. And according to this version, there's a death date of April 25th, 1782. Historians don't all agree, but that's kind of the fun of legends. They're dealer's choice. So should you watch The Lost Pirate Kingdom? Sure, it's similar to learning and it's entertaining, except when you see Blackbeard's penis getting injected with mercury to cure his syphilis, but otherwise, yeah, it's a good time. 
particularly, as Brandy Jensen points out in her Jezebel article, when you're mildly hungover. So thank you for listening to The Sewing Circle. As always, you can find all my sources on my website, sewingcirclepodcast.com. You can follow me at TSC underscore pod on both Twitter and Instagram. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next week. 